Welcome to the Sociology Annex. I'm Jean Beeman at University of California, Santa Barbara. I'm Netta Megbula at University of Toronto. And today we're joined by Patrick Ingalls at Grinnell College. Hi, Patrick. Hello, everybody. Sociology Annex here with Patrick Ingalls, who is assistant professor of sociology at Grinnell College. He is the author of the newly released Narrow Fairways, Getting By and Falling Behind in the New India. It recently came out with Oxford University Press. So Patrick, tell us about this book. What's the gist? This was a a, a long-term ethnographic project where I tracked the social mobility prospects of these poor lower caste golf caddies who carried the bags of of wealthy members at three private golf courses in Bangalore, India. Bangalore has been known certainly of late as as the Silicon Valley of India. And uh, I mean, I became interested in in IT and software software professionals originally, and that was going to be, that was going to be the project. And at the tail end of my dissertation proposal meeting, the, the people in the room, we got to talking about Thomas Friedman's book, The World is Flat, which had come out about a year or so previously. And Thomas Friedman, he was standing, he, he narrates this on page one of the book. Uh, he's standing next to a, to a billionaire CEO of some software tech company. And they're, they're standing at the first tee of this golf course, the Connecticut Golf Association, the KGA, uh, as it's referred to. And they're staring out at IBM and Microsoft buildings behind the first screen. And the billionaire tells Thomas Friedman, just aim for IBM and Microsoft. And this becomes a way for, for Friedman to think about to be, think about Bangalore and its, and its history and its place within, within this global economy. Yeah, uh, India had, had steadily been moving towards liberalization in the 1980s, and there was a balance of, a balance of payments crisis. Uh, in '91, that was resolved through a structural adjustment program and, and opening up the economy and liberalizing the economy. And Friedman had sort of came, had had arrived on the scene, and he was going to tell the story about it and how it was benefiting uh, all Indians. Uh, and the idea of the, of the book is that through telecommunications and IT and software, that the average Indian worker was now going to be competing on a more level playing field mm-hmm. with their counterparts in the United States and, and Europe. And so when I started off thinking about the the dissertation and eventual book, I was just going to focus on these IT and software workers. And I got, I just got the idea to go to the golf club because the golf club was right next to an IT park uh, in the sort of eastern eastern edge of Bangalore. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I can go on from there, but I'm sure you have more questions. What 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 was the take? What's the takeaway? What did you find? The takeaway. So there's, you know, Thomas Friedman has the idea, and not just Friedman, but there's there's mainstream economists and other social scientists who will agree with him that various processes of globalization and privatization, you know, limiting the reach and the intervention of the state. Uh, will in fact, you know, produce a, a, a setting that is more amenable to freedom and opportunity. And the counter argument uh, from folks like David Harvey or Mike Davis um, and, and other critical scholars and activists is to is to push back against that idea and say, no, in fact, the world is not flat. It's it's incredibly unequal, and that that may well be true, and it, it is true. Uh, I, I acknowledge that up front in the book, but I think. 
what more critical like you know critical scholars have in mind is a real physical social separation between rich and poor and what uh, what I eventually exposed and, and studied was the intimate bonds and connections between rich and poor. And that 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 is a central takeaway. And I, th- I think a second takeaway, I mean, if you understand that the rich and poor are not being pulled apart, but actually being drawn together oh. um, as a result of, in the, of the underinvestment and the disinvestment of education and healthcare and jobs programs, et cetera, that the poor come to depend on the rich for money and opportunity. That's the first piece. That's, the ta- that's, the, that's one takeaway. The second is that the deeper those bonds between rich and poor, right, vertically up and down, the solidarity between, between golf caddies in this case or, or informal precarious workers, those bonds begin to fray and fracture because the ability of, of anybody who's working class and in, in a precarious informal setting or situation where they have to depend on on somebody wealthier and more powerful than them, then the allegiance is going to be to that wealthier, powerful person and not to the people who share their class position or location. Um, and so that that's the second takeaway. I think that sounds like a really good synopsis of what readers can expect. Uh, it was definitely my favorite part of your book, Patrick. The interactions that you describe that really come alive off the page between, as you said, these two groups of people that we are taught in many ways to think of as separate entities whose paths don't cross. Uh, and if they do, they certainly wouldn't be in these sort of intimate spaces that you have gained access into throughout the book. And so that sense of intimacy and the interactions there, I think, is a huge contribution to sociology and probably my favorite thing from the book. And I also want to say, I think there's a takeaway there for people who are about to begin projects, whether it's like grad students who are listening to this episode or people who are beginning a second or a third project was like, that was brave of you to be at your dissertation proposal meeting, you said, thinking that it was going to go in this way. And you let that spark of inspiration actually drive you towards something really different. And so I think that's an important lesson. Well, I I spent months working on this dissertation proposal that was essentially going to be about figuring out the lives, the everyday lives of IT software professionals. I'm very thankful that I did not pursue that path ultimately, because very quickly that market, if you will, of literature was oversaturated. I never had to worry that somebody else was studying golf caddies in India. In fact, it was the opposite. Like I had to continually make a case for studying golf caddies and studying this this level of interaction between the rich and the poor. And now we have a U.S. president who has spent more days on the golf course than doing any other thing. And so we are deeply interested in what's going down at golf courses. And I'm sure his golf caddies can tell us a lot about Trump and this presidency. We need an undercover ethnography of... We do. (laughs) Okay. The Trump golf courses. Mm -hmm. I was just curious at the level of methodology. So you worked with with translators, right? I did. How was that? I Yeah. So I ha- I hired a couple interpreters. Um, I think there's an important distinction to be made between between working with an interpreter versus a translator. Okay. So there were there were moments working with the interpreters, as I'll call them, where I did want to confirm that what was said was in fact said, but it was not strictly a translation. So that that's one thing I'll say. There is a there was a lot of English spoken among the golf caddies, mm-hmm. but 
at the time, I mean, it was a matter of resources and funding and timing. And I think one of the advantages of, you know, having a job right now and the resources available is I can be learning Spanish for this next project in Mexico. Mm -hmm. And I didn't necessarily have that when I did this work in Bangalore. And so it was a more practical decision. Mm -hmm. And I mean, ideally, sure. But I would have learned one of the local languages. And unfortunately, I didn't. But mind you, like, in as diverse a place as Bangalore is, I feel like to do it justice, I would have had to learn five or six different languages. Mm -hmm. And that would have been impossible. Mm -hmm. right? So you learn, you learn Kannada, which is a local language in, in Karnataka. You know, can you speak to golf caddies who, who exclusively speak Tamil mm -hmm. or Urdu or Hindi? So, yeah. Yeah, I guess I, I guess I was just, I wasn't so much thinking about it as a limitation, but I guess I was just curious, like, like, as you're like, not. But, but, yeah. no, but, but, but using these interpreters was also an opportunity because it, we, we had spoken earlier about like being an outside, an outsider as an right. ethnographer. Yeah. I mean, I, I had these two interpreters, uh, one was female, one was male, and there were possibilities and opportunities opened up by having them both work with me mm -hmm. that they could not only translate or interpret what was being told to me, but put it in a context that helped me understand what was really going on in these people's lives. Mm -hmm. And with, with the female interpreter in particular, she was able to converse and convey ideas about, about the women in the lives of these caddies in ways that I may have not un, like understood or picked up right away or on the spot, right? So I think it opened up opportunities. Definitely. But also, I mean, there were also limits to it, of course, too. Yeah, it just seems like a particular kind of like intimacy when you're actually talking to people to have another person. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 Patrick, what do you think was the most surprising thing as you actually sat down to write the manuscript? Something that perhaps only you realized once you had to to write the damn thing? Mm -hmm. Are you talking about the writing process itself? Because that, that's another conversation, maybe. <laughs> about that too as people yeah, who that's another have, conversation have done this. But i guess I, I was more curious you know sort of analytically yeah so analytically i mean i i can i can talk endlessly about the caddies but you know my research started off studying up is mm -hmm. you know and i was gonna i was gonna understand first the it software workers who worked around the golf clubs and golf courses but then i quickly sort of switched focus and then i my, my sort of second move was to study just the members of these three private golf courses. And it was interesting, and I kind of only figured this out theoretically and analytically as I was finishing the manuscript last year. But going back to earlier notes, like in 2007 and 2008, when I was living in Bangalore, and before I'd even thought about studying the caddies and their interactions with the wealthy members, the members themselves would come across as actually fairly progressive. And I mean, they were anti-government, but they wanted a government that would work for the people. And they had this this sensibility that what was happening in India and, and the privatization move and liberalization wasn't fair and just to poor people. And this was what they told me when we were sitting in the back of you know, clubhouse patios, drinking our whiskeys and having these conversations about poverty and inequality. And they could come across as very progressive in their views and perspectives. I mean, and even, you know, Thomas Friedman's book came up and they're like, this guy's got it all wrong. 
And they and their warning to me was, you need to get out of the golf club and go talk to our caddies and our maids and our drivers and our servants. They're really, really struggling. Like this is just a small percentage of the population here. But then when I started studying the golf caddies in a more focused manner, and then I told them about this, what I realized is that there was an ideological shift or, or a different display or a different performance uh, of sympathy, right? And I realized, and this is what I've, I've sort of puzzled out in the last year or so of writing the manuscript, there was this sympathy for the poor out there. I kind of like, there was sympathy for this abstract concept or category of the poor. Mm-hmm. But in the space of the golf club, right? Their poor golf caddies actually had opportunities, right? And so, but but they just were misusing these opportunities and that they were drunks and gamblers and uh, uh, low life's riffraff of society, one member referred to them, right? But previously, when I'd asked that one particular member who referred to them as the low class riffraff of society, he was all about talking about the injustices and poverty in India. In a kind of romanticized, abstract, distant yeah. way. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Patrick, I also want to ask you um, throughout the monograph, you have a lot of photographs. They mm-hmm. span from, I think, the earliest days of field work all the way through. You have some dated 2016. Did you intend to do visual sociology? Was that something you were trained in? Um, there's just a tremendous amount of images that you were able to include. Yeah, and I, t- I mean, that's obviously just a fraction. I mean, I, I think we all do this as, as ethnographic researchers. We take a, a ton of pictures. Mm-hmm. You know, it was important for me to convey a sense of, of place um, as well. I mean, I, particularly to come back to the question of, of speaking to and writing for an American audience uh, or, an, or an audience that of people who may not ever get to India, what does this level of poverty look like? What do these places look like? What does a sign that says no caddies allowed look like? Right. So I think that it was important to have that alongside alongside the text itself. Are you an amateur photographer? I would not. I'm an aspiring. I would love to be uh, call a photographer. I would never I would never apply that label. Aspiring photographer. No, actually, I will say about about the visual sociology piece, I, I had a digital camera that I used early in the fieldwork. And it was it was more tactile, and there was a button, and I took a like I would say I would say the majority of my photos at the hip. I would have the camera on my hip, and I would just be clicking, 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 and that became more difficult because I I transferred you know, to to I transitioned to a smartphone, and it was it was a bit more difficult. So I that's that's probably a subject for somebody else to think about. But I'm thinking about the practicality of taking pictures on, in field in the field. Yeah, I mean, I I just say that because they're really like beautifully composed. Like, I don't have a background in art, but I think I know enough about it to be like, oh, these are good pictures. <laughs> yeah. I, I had I had to hire an actual professional photographer to take the photo that's on the cover. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Why is that? Because I I I trusted him more than me yeah. to take this photo, okay. right? Mm-hmm. That photo is an I mean, it's an interesting story. Well, first. Describe the photo for people who haven't seen it. Okay, so the photo is a picture of a golf caddy who's uh, walking, I, I don't know what number fairway. This, I think this is the 18th fairway. And this is a professional golf swimmer. And he's carrying this bag towards the clubhouse at the Canardica Golf Association. This is, I, I refer to it as like Thomas Friedman's golf club. This is where he has his insight about the flat world. And I was always concerned about how, how would I get this photo for the cover? Because, because the club may not 
let me back inside, given what I say and write about the club and the members. But it turned out that when I was there last December, there was a professional golf tournament. And I knew some of the people who ran the professional golf tournament. And they they had to just like contractually have to give access to photojournalists to have the space to shoot the professional golf tournament. So that's what we did. We sat out there all day and took photos. And when he took that photo, I thought that that's it. That's the photo. Wow. Yeah. So you, you just alluded to something that I want you to talk more about. So bringing sort of what was what has been the response to your research of the people that you researched, I guess? I don't know yet. I'm going to India this weekend. I'm giving a few talks in, in Bangalore and Delhi. I don't know. Uh, and I don't know about the negative way that you wrote about one of the golf clubs. Well, about all the golf clubs. I mean, I think I, I think the elite of India, you know, actively, whether consciously consciously or not, although I, I think I suspect consciously, undermine the social mobility prospects of poor people in India. This one golf club, the Karnataka Golf Association, basically came about because a group of friends got together in the 1970s and they were members of another golf club across town, the Bangalore Golf Club, the, the Bangalore Golf Club. This is one of the oldest golf clubs in the world. And but it's a small golf course. It's about 60, 60 to 65 acres. And they wanted to have an international standard golf course to play golf on. Um, which would be, you know, which would be over 100 acres. It ended up being 125 acres. This is the KGA. And they they approached friends of theirs who had took very important positions in government and then eventually got this land. It was a it was a public lake or water tank that was eventually converted into this golf course. Um, and this property is now probably worth well over a billion dollars. Also worked out with the government officials was essentially this arrangement where where the club itself would pay one rupee an acre for a 30-year term, right? Which is nothing, right? We're, we're talking about pennies. And when that lease expired in 2010, a new lease agreement was never worked out, or at least it wasn't a, a couple of years ago, the last time I checked. So to, you know, to, to sort of, to present in writing, the findings from archival research that I did, right? I mean, I was had access to the records of these golf clubs and this one in particular, and to map out how it was actually done, how this neoliberal project came into existence, and to divulge that to the world. And then also to layer on top of it, how the members play these kind of ideological games that justify their position of wealth and authority and power over these poor lower caste golf caddies I don't, I don't know if they're going to be amenable or open to that conversation. The other side of me is like, well, the elite are going to be like the elite anywhere, and maybe they're not going to care. So, like that, like that's the flip side, right? Is that like you, we, we we write these texts, right? And, and, and you think like, okay, like wouldn't it wouldn't it be great if they if they really cared and it got into a huff about it and uh, this made a big scene, but. It's just as well that they might not care. Right. Which it would make sense based on your argument, right? Yeah. If they're actually involved in oppressing the claddies, then yeah, why would, yeah. Right. But you asked earlier about like findings that were sort of interesting or maybe counterintuitive is that as much as I write about the ideology of the elite, that ideology is reproduced among the caddies themselves, mm -hmm. right? So, so, so the caddies who 
and, and just to be clear, the, these caddies are not regular employees of, this, of these golf clubs. In fact, the in fact the golf clubs do everything they can to ensure that there's no organization and collective action among the golf caddies. Right? They they keep them as informal or what's referred to as contract or casual laborers, um, who have no rights to any formal contract or agreement or benefits, healthcare, etc. So, but that dynamic means that the caddies and they understand this that their livelihood depends on their ability to draw themselves closer to to a select number of members who will then take care of them right who will give them uh, you know a, a certain amount of money at the end of the day uh, but not only that that these members these good members quote good members as they referred to will be available when a caddy needs to put his his child into into a private school like a nominally private school that is really no better than a, than a government public school or to pay for some health health or medical bill. And so that commitment, as I said, that, that this allegiance is upward to these members and not to one another. And it was, it's been interesting and, and to reflect and think about and to write about how that dynamic wears away any potential of solidarity or collective resistance. And that over time, the caddies themselves, particularly the ones who who are maybe a little bit more successful than the others, right? Like they can get their kids into halfway decent schools and certain medical bills can be covered um, and they can take interest-free loans. Like those caddies, and there's a small section of them, but those caddies over time adopt and reproduce this neoliberal narrative and ideology that they borrow mm-hmm. from, from the members, right? So they, they, they interpret their success, if you will, not as a case of luck, right? Just happening to be happening to be at the golf course at the right time when some member pulls up and, and selects him, right? They they refashion refashion that as an instance or demonstration of their hard work, mm-hmm. right? Because they they kept this member right interested in them. And then the other thing on the flip side is that the caddies who are not as successful, they reframe their bad luck as bad fate. Right, that that somehow it was written in the heavens that they would live a life of poverty a, a, as they do. Uh, so, both of these dynamics, of course, reproduce and provide cover or justification for what's happening among the elite themselves. Mm-hmm. That's so fascinating. I can just think of so many parallels to other contexts. So, I mean, I just when you were talking, I was thinking about you know Al Young's work on the minds of marginalized black men, right, and the ways in which. Yeah lower income black men still are very much invested in this idea of the American dream, even though it essentially functions to only marginalize them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I think this for me is one of the, one of the important consequences of this shift to move public resources in the direction of supporting private interests right. and underfunding healthcare, education, et cetera, is that, it sort of, it compels, it necessarily compels people who are disadvantaged and leading precarious lives to perform acts of servility and deference mm-hmm. at, at the, sometimes literally at the feet of wealthy, powerful people. And so mm-hmm. that's a dynamic that is playing out, I think, in India. And as I said earlier, like, I mean, like Thomas Friedman and others got it wrong. Like the idea that the, the trends towards liberalization and globalization would lead to actually more freedom, mm-hmm. more autonomy, more independence has, and that's worked out for some segment of the workforce, right? But for these caddies and others like them, it's it's been in the opposite direction. It's actually meant more dependence, more dependency, and servility. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, just to dangle the carrot in front of the future readers of your book. Um, that's why I think the case of the caddies at Eagleton is so fascinating. You also end in your conclusion by gesturing toward how the future of India might actually be written by by folks who are in that kind of a situation. And so in a way, we might be interested in what the elites uh, who are part of your study would have to say about your book. But when you come back from India, I also want to hear about uh, if you're able to connect with any of the caddies, particularly the ones at I Eagleton yeah. that, that you say, right. right, might actually write the future of India. Well, Eagleton. So there, there, there are there are three golf clubs here. Although I, I visited like almost twenty golf clubs all over India, and um, in terms of resources and just practicality, I focus on the three golf courses in 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 Bangalore. Although I think now there's maybe five or six golf courses total. So like, golf has taken off. But the two golf clubs in the city are the Karnataka Golf Association, which is in the east of the city, and then there's the Bangalore Golf Club, which. I mentioned earlier is, is a smaller golf club. It was founded by the British colonial elite and the army essentially in the late 19th century. Those two golf clubs are in the city. And then there's this third golf club, the Eagleton golf resort that is, that is a, is a privately funded, basically a gated community a 500 to 600 acre uh, gated community with a golf course in, in the center of it. Whereas the caddies in, in town, in the city are lower caste and and poor the caddies out at eagleton uh when i when i was getting to know them they were in their teens and they were part of a dominant caste group whose families had land and so they looked upon working at the golf club as, as a, just a kind of way to generate you know a, a little bit of extra pocket change like a side hustle yeah, it was a side hustle for them right like they didn't appear to me at least then in the beginning as exploited and oppressed right but by the end of the book because of land in this part part of the city was growing in price and value and some farmers who were struggling with crops etc or who had a really good deal they ended up selling their land and so as their land got privatized and they converted from being peasants essentially uh, or landholders to workers that the dynamics shifted for them and their and their children, right? So they so these caddies now, the ones that I was writing about in the book, I mean, they start off as teenagers, but they're now in their late twenties, early thirties. Mm-hmm. And so they don't necessarily have the the money or the land that's gonna come to them that yeah. would have that did for their for their parents' generation. Because now that land's not there. Right. And this is this is forcing them to take up these acts of servility and deference that initially I was only observing in the case of the first two golf clubs. Mm-hmm. Whereas, I mean, and you can imagine, I mean, if, if caddies are teenagers and they know that their parents have got land, they were also better educated, right? So they were staying in school longer and they just worked on the weekends, Friday, Saturday, or Sundays, right? And they, they whatever the money they collected was theirs. That's a different dynamic than caddies like in the city who, right, are, are struggling to get by. Mm-hmm. And and having to take care of families without land, right? Mm-hmm. And now these caddies out at Eagleton, some of them are having families, and they don't have this land to fall back on, and so that's a different dynamic. So it was interesting to see how the different caddy groups, although they started out in my observations as different, ended up sort of becoming more and more the same over time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I speak. I think it speaks to 
other countries, Nigeria, Iran, places that are having that youth boom, right, where there was the promise of education, this highly educated force that wants to work, that wants to move on in their lives, but they're finding a really different predicament uh, than the one that mm-hmm. they envisioned their young adulthood. And so it was really the, the caddies of Eagleton who I think captured my imagination and my heartstrings by the conclusion of the book. Mm-hmm. So Patrick, maybe we can conclude by you uh, just telling us kind of what you're working on now. You've mentioned Mexico a few times. So. Well, I, I, yeah, there, there's actually two projects. There's one project back in India. There's a, there's a school for poor Dalit children that was founded by a Wall Street millionaire in the late '90s, and I, I got to know I got to know the founder um, and the administration at this school uh, in 2014 or so, um, and I made visits. and And so I, I'm now I'm tracking the graduates of this program over time. That's another longitudinal project to see what gains they've made in their lives as a result of this philanthropy. So that's one project. And then the next project, uh, or, or a, a third, if you will, if you count the book as number one and the school project number two, the, the, the book, it will be a book project, I hope, on Mexico and the Mexican elite. There's practical reasons for it, because you know, living in the Midwest, uh, I can be in Mexico City within a few hours, so that that's practically appealing. I'm learning Spanish. And I, I'm, I'm just coming to, to think more deeply and critically about issues of finance and, and neoliberalism from the view of elites, right? Like what the first book really engages with is, is the interaction between the elite and the poor, but really from the view of the poor, right? Like what do they gain or not from these relationships? And, and I think they're in, in many, if not most cases, all cases are just surviving. Mm-hmm. They're surviving in a setting or in situ in a situation that is guided and determined by people much, pow- much more powerful than them. And I'm interested in how the elite, the political and economic elite in particular of Mexico, how do they come to these agreements and this consensus about how to run the society? And that's that's a different question than trying to understand how the poor exist within a structure that is necessarily unequal and oppressive. Well, we look forward to hearing more about both those projects. Thank you, Patrick Ingalls. Again, the book is entitled Narrow Fairways. And it just came, was released with Oxford University Press. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Sociology Annex. This is Jean Beeman at the University of California, Santa Barbara. And Netta Mike from University of Toronto. And Patrick Ingalls from Grinnell College. Okay, bye everyone. Bye, thank you. Bye.